And welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Tuesday night, October 13th, the year of our Lord, 2020. The struggle, very, very real. Probably, Colin, I would say, as real as it's ever been on the show tonight because we consider ourselves to be very responsible. We are professional, and we present this show in a first-class manner. But I would be lying to you folks if I didn't tell you that the Atlanta Braves game's right on this computer right here. So you see me minimize it. Colin, it's minimized, and I am dialed in for the next 30 minutes to an hour, however long this show takes. It is jam-packed. This is Prediction Tuesday. We get our predictions out of the way 48 hours ahead of when most people do it, so we're not affected by what everyone else thinks, hopefully. Knock on wood. Georgia at Alabama. No other way to classify it or categorize it, rather. It is the game of the year in the Southeastern Conference. We're breaking it down tonight from every angle we know how to break it down from. I'm also going to talk about a lot of drama at Texas. So much so that I know some of you, like if you are, for instance, a Kentucky football fan, maybe you don't care a lot about Texas. But what I try and do, if we, if we narrow in on one program, I try and discuss it in a, a broad way where obviously it impacts the people who pull for the program, but also this is a ripple effect kind of topic. What happens at Texas, Texas is what I call a keystone, well, keystone species is the, um, is the geological term, the what would it be called, Colin? Biological term? I don't know. It has to do with nature. So in nature, you have keystone species. A crocodile, for example, is a keystone species. What they do affects the entire ecosystem, ecological. Well, Texas in college football is a keystone program. What happens there and at Alabama and Southern Cal, it has a ripple effect. So we're going to discuss that tonight within the context of the entire sport of college football. Also today, a big day at 24-7 Sports because we released the updated talent composite, the 24-7 team talent composite. It's basically, it's how talented are you? Talent alone does not win games, but you got to have some talent to win at the highest level. So we're going to talk about that, and there have been some moves, uh, a few notable takeaways to talk about on that tonight. Also, we've got two more best bets on the Ramen Noodle Express, which is cooking so much so that even I undersold us on Sunday. I came on the show and I said, Ramen Noodle Express, we're hitting at 58%. And that's wrong. I lied to you. We're actually at 60%. Let's get it started. Georgia at Alabama. Alabama Sunday night was a four-point favorite. Alabama is now a six-point favorite. And I'm sure that that line is not done moving just yet. This is a Saturday night primetime game on CBS. I think it's the second time in as many years Georgia's played in that primetime CBS game last year. I want to say it was the Notre Dame game. Saturday night, 8 o'clock Eastern, 7 Central, in Bryant-Denny Stadium on CBS, as I said. This has become, to me, the premier rivalry in the SEC, which is very rare to say for teams that aren't in the same division. But this is something that has risen to the level on the recruiting trail and also just on the football field and amongst the fan bases, where I think it's overtaken Alabama LSU. I'm dead serious. I really think that. And so, I mean, look at the marquee this week. There's a reason uh, they zoomed in on this one very, very early in the offseason and said, that's the one we want for the primetime game. Consider what Nick Saban has been, not to Alabama, consider what he's been to Georgia. I think there is a lot of minus here. I think there are a couple of pluses. I want you to think about 2012. That's the SEC championship game. Alabama edges Georgia. Either one of them was going to go paint the walls with Notre Dame's blood in Miami. So, Nick Saban stands directly in between Georgia and a national championship that year. 2015, they go in there to Athens. That was the rain game. We were on the sideline for that one. Georgia very highly ranked. Nick Saban comes in there. Alabama thrashes him. That season goes off the rails for Georgia. 2017, national championship game. Overtime. 
That's all that stands between Georgia and another national championship. And then the year after that, there they are in the SEC championship, and it's again Nick Saban's team standing between Georgia and a shot to go play for a playoff spot, national championship. So you never know what Georgia, you never know, at least in the last decade, what Georgia would have achieved if not for Nick Saban. But I'm going to make a counterpoint. Look at the level this program, Georgia, this program's operating at. And think about what it took to get there. Think about the pressure that had to be put on to get there. If not for the pressure applied by Nick Saban in Tuscaloosa on Mark Richt at Georgia, he may not have been fired. And there may not have been finally the willingness from a lot of people up there in the sweater vest crowd who drugged their feet for a long time to finally commit to what they needed to commit to. And I think we all understand what I'm talking about here. You got to say yes on everything. They finally gave this man, Kirby Smart, everything he needed to compete and so now, guess what they're doing? We're going to talk about it later in the show. They are recruiting at as high a level as anyone in America. And now you could argue they're taking the most talented roster into this game Saturday night. When was the last time you said that about an Alabama game? This thing shares a lot of similarity, I think, with the 2015 game. You remember the circumstances there. The circumstances where Alabama had already lost a game, ironically to Ole Miss a couple of weeks before, and they went in that game as an underdog. Now, Alabama's favored in this game Saturday night, but I think in regular season terms, I can't remember a regular season game where there had been as much, and there has been, as much doubt thrown Alabama's way as there is being thrown their way right now. But let me tell you what the difference is. The difference is, in that 2015 game, the Alabama fan base was totally convinced that they were going in there and winning. I was totally convinced they were going in there and winning. I felt really good about Alabama in that game. Even though they were an underdog for the first time in like 19 years, they went in there and took care of business. This game, I think the confidence of the Alabama fan base, a lot shakier. And I don't necessarily know that I would describe Georgia as that way. So, I mean, it's, it's very rare that you feel that way about Alabama. We also, we know something about that 2015 game that we don't know about 2020. This is a very important point as we start to dive into this game. That 2015 team and the 2016 team, the style of play, they love to call it murder ball there. There was a collective DNA about the guys they had, specifically on that defense. Uh, They had, I would venture to guess, half a dozen guys that fit the description of a true alpha competitor more than they have on this year's defense. They got half a dozen of them on that team. I haven't seen one on this team. So we know that team had it. Don't know if this team's going to have it. How is Alabama favored in this game? If you have asked me this one time, you've asked me this at least four or five dozen times. I answered it kind of on the Late Kick Extra podcast this morning, 100th episode, by the way. Thank you for that. But I'm going to kind of answer it uh, again here. Public perception is kind of like water, whereas an odds maker's perception is kind of like honey. Think about the different speeds that these move at. I've always made it metaphorical to this. If I had two plates here, and I were to put a drop of water on this plate, drop of honey on this plate, and then I just turn the plates upside down. What's gonna happen to the drop of water? It's gone, just like that, it falls off. The honey starts to move too, but it creeps and creeps and creeps like a little sloth, and it takes a while. It'll eventually be on the table just like the water, but it takes it a lot longer. And that's kind of how an odds maker, you're asking me how Bama's favored, that's how an odds maker views this. Because if you take yourself back to just a week ago, forget, forget a month ago, forget the beginning of the season, just a week ago, If you were to ask yourself, all right, uh, Bama just beat Texas A&M pretty handedly, might I add, and Georgia struggled with Arkansas for a half, and then they got right there, and and they just beat Auburn, but, I mean, they didn't even top 30 points. Like, we don't really still know what their 
ultimate ceiling is offensively. Got a good defense, but I mean, you certainly wouldn't have favored them against Alabama. I mean, no one would have argued that. And what I'm telling you is, I saw the Alabama defense shredded just as much as you did the other night. I saw Georgia dominate the second half against Tennessee just as much as you did. What I'm telling you is, in no world, unless you have catastrophic injury at the quarterback position, in no world is an odds maker's opinion of a matchup changing that much over the span of one week. Let's dive in here. Areas of focus on this game. I just mentioned it. What we knew about the 2015 Bama team that we don't know about this one, killer instinct. It's what every great Nick Saban team, or for that matter, just every great football team, period, has had. Saban's had a bunch of them, and they've had that. And let me tell you something I think I know about this Georgia team. I think they have it. That defense especially has it. I would imagine Nick Saban and that staff watching Georgia film this week, and it looks pretty familiar. That's how they used to look. Now, I would also argue Nick Saban looks at his offense and says, boy, I could replicate, I could put in a bottle what my defenses used to be mentally, and I could put it in this offense right now, and I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Because Bama's offense is every bit what Georgia's defense is. I'm talking about in the intangible category. I'm not talking about matchup here, strengths and weaknesses here. Second thing I want to focus on, can Georgia convert trend to identity? You have watched them in the second half this season just totally splatter people. It is a 62 to 6. That's what they're outscoring the opposition by currently in second halves this year. Now, you could draw two conclusions from that, one of two, I guess. I guess you could be in both camps. You could either say, well, yeah, it stands to reason. Who have they played? They've played Arkansas, and they played Auburn, and they played Tennessee. Those are vastly or to, to marginally inferior rosters, depending on which one you're talking about. And it stands to reason Georgia would have a second half edge. Again, I want to say, I didn't say 32 to 6. I said 62 to 6 edge. So you could say that. Or you could say, uh, yeah, well, there's also a level of physicality that they're playing at collectively that I don't think any team out there on their schedule is ready to match. And so it doesn't really matter who they're playing. Like, they're going to be the same every week. They don't have to change what they do. Or you could just believe both of those. And you could believe, hey, you, you raise the level of competition here. You know, a team like Alabama is going to be a much tougher out, obviously, than Arkansas or, or even Tennessee. But it is important to note there, because if that trend becomes their identity, then ooh, you talk about dragging someone by the throat out into the deep end. I already mentioned Crocodile once tonight. Mention it again. Remember Jordan Battle for Alabama. Safety. They don't have many good ones there right now. Out in the first half. Bama defense. Also want you to remember this. 86 plays. As much as I sat here last week, and I talked about for the Florida A&M preview, how many plays that Florida defense was on the field for the week before, I think it was almost the same number. Now we got to talk about Alabama. 86 plays they were on the field for way, way late into the night against Ole Miss. Obviously the last thing on earth that you wanted. Let's talk about that Georgia defense, man. This is such a statement moment for them. It is a statement moment because I think they are prepared to validate everything that they think about themselves. You cannot convince the nation of collectively until you play a team like Alabama. You, you could be the 85 Bears, and you're not going to prove that greatness against Auburn and the mess they are offensively right now or Tennessee or Arkansas. But you go into Tuscaloosa, and let's say you hold Alabama to like 20 points or 23 points. Uh, this is one of the most historic pacing offenses right now that we've seen in the history of college football. That would be a big deal. But on the other side of that coin, think about the statement you can make. If you're the Alabama defense, because I think, I think I've heard probably more comparisons this year or this week 
between this year's Alabama team and last year's LSU team, as I've heard all year about any, because everyone's looking for that. Everyone's looking for an angle, and that's fine. Uh, I think a lot of people have lazily, for lack of a better term, started going to that. Everyone, until the end of time, if you start looking good offensively, you're going to be compared to LSU 2019. Well, I will say this about that LSU team. Stylistically much different. It starts a quarterback than what you have on this Alabama team. That's no knock on Mac Jones. It's just a different kind of quarterback. But the one thing that LSU did is, I remember being down in Baton Rouge when they squeaked by Auburn by three points. It was like 23-20 or something like that. But by the end of the year, I felt like if they played that same Auburn team, they'd hang 45 on them because they, they kept progressively getting better week over week. So if Alabama's on that trajectory, if they're on that pace, no one's holding them under 30. No one. I don't care how good you are defensively. That's the way the college game is today. So someone's probably going to make a statement here. Um, could we have both teams make a statement? I will say this. Boy, oh boy. You know what? I want to save that. I'll save that. All right. Let's dive into this. Georgia... I really think, um, I've heard a lot of conventional wisdom this week, so I'm going to tell you where I think Georgia's going to try and buck conventional wisdom. A lot of people are going to say, and I believe this historically to be true, a lot of people say, man, you go against a Nick Saban defense, and they make you throw the ball to beat them. You know, they're, they're going to stack the box, and sometimes they don't even have to stack the box, just the way they recruit and their personnel, they can stop your run. Well, historically, that's been true. Friends, I don't know if that's true on this team. And I'm also going to tell you this. Auburn called themselves doing the same thing. Auburn told themselves, you know what? We can stop the run because, you know, we've just always been able to. So we can stop the run, and we're going to force old Stetson Bennett there to beat us. And you know what Georgia did? Georgia, instead of looking at that pre-snap look, and throwing on early downs, you know, because you got to loosen the box because we can't run against this front, they ran anyway. And I think at least early on, Kirby Smart's not an idiot. Kirby Smart and Todd Munkin, not idiots. They, they watched this film against Ole Miss, and I'm, it's going to be radically different, man. Alabama was a nickel and dime personnel a majority of the night. They had a different front, different personnel than they're going to have on the field. But when you look at collectively the identity of a team, you either have it in you. There's some adjectives I can't really use on air to describe it, but there's something intrinsically you got to have to bow your neck against, against a legitimate run game. You either, as, as a collective identity, you either have that or you don't. And I don't see any reason why Georgia shouldn't try and sledgehammer them early on. And if they don't have it, it'll be evident. If they do have it, man, you got a defense that's going to buy you some time, hopefully. So uh, conventional wisdom would say, all right, we got to loosen that box, throw it. Run into it anyway. I think they'll run into it anyway. I think they believe they have that much of a physical edge really on both sides of the line of scrimmage. I think Georgia believes that. Now, they can believe it and it not be true, but I think they believe that. The first half, uh, specifically here, because of the absence of Jordan Battle, the Alabama safety, in conjunction with what they watched Ole Miss do last week, leads me to believe Georgia's probably going to run out of a lot more spread looks than they normally do. Normally, you look at some of their offensive sets and they, they could play in a phone booth. Don't think that's as wise here. Um, Lane Kiffin and company had a huge advantage last week, as you most of the time do, when they ran out of spread sets. I, I was listening and talking to some folks earlier this week, and I was talking about how shocking it must have been to see that amount of rushing yards put up by a team that's not really known for running the ball. And these people said, well, I mean, that's, that's an automatic go-to with Lane. He sees you in that look, he's checking to a run. Now, it's just that normally, in the past, when Alabama checked into that look, they they still had guys who were multiple enough, and they had guys who were versatile enough to pressure the quarterback 
and stop the run. They were still gap sound and they could get pressure. Alabama doesn't have that right now. And so I look at it, if I'm Georgia, I got enough depth at receiver and, and I got enough versatility in my offense. And I got a quarterback who can extend plays when the play breaks down to where I don't need to max protect every time here. I can spread you out. I'm going to run it on you while I spread you out, but I'm going to spread you out a little bit. And I'll tell you the other thing. The way to beat Alabama is not outside anyway, man. I mean, George Pickens is a great guy to have out there, and he you know, he takes up Pat Sertan or he takes up Josh Job, one of these corners, however they choose to play it. That's not how Ole Miss beat them anyway. I mean, their, their two top receivers had under 30 yards, I think, total last week. It's the running backs and the tight ends out of the backfield, right over the middle of the field where Stetson Bennett has shined anyway. That's how so far this year you've beaten Alabama. So the other part of that is, I mean, Alabama's been terrible on third down. They've been terrible defending the middle of the field. I would imagine that's what they sit there and work on all week long is defending the middle of the field and at least make them throw it outside the hashes if they're going to beat you. But if they start having, if they, Georgia, start having success doing this early, think about those game factors. We, we go to a few critical factors, and that is yeah, T.O.P., time of possession, and, and plays run in the first half, especially if you have carryover from the week before. Bama's got carryover effect from the week before with how long their defense had to be on the field. I mean, if, if we go into the half, I don't care if Georgia's trailing by three. They were trailing against Tennessee. They had 44 plays run in the first half. Did you see that impact in the second half? So let's say Saturday night. Let's say Bama's up 23-17 to 17 at the half, but let's say Georgia's sitting there with a 44-23 to 23 plays run advantage. Seven of Bama's points are off turnovers. Maybe Waddles returned a punt. But it's not that Bama's necessarily been going up and down the field on them offensively. I'd feel pretty comfortable if I were Georgia there. Red zone could be everything in this game. It's, I know that's stating the obvious. But I want you to really think about how uniquely red zone could impact this game. Kirby Smart, I think, likes his odds both ways here. Uh, let's start on offense, okay? So, so Georgia... Uh, they got a huge offensive line, and they got guys they put in the backfield that play both ways, especially when they get down inside the five. And, um, you know, they do a lot of – I mentioned the 2015 Alabama team. They do a lot of what that 2015 Alabama team did in terms of taking some of those big-time interior defensive linemen and using them as lead blockers. And let me tell you something. Georgia gets down near the goal line. Alabama has not been a good goal line defensive team for a few years now. Personnel-wise, they don't stack up down near the goal line with a team like Georgia. I know that they got shut out of the end zone last week, right near halftime. I don't think Kirby Smart would flinch in making that same decision again this week against uh, Alabama. But here's the other part of that. The other part of it, and you're talking about Georgia's defensive strategy. I don't know that they have someone who, in fact, I don't think they have someone who can consistently cover a Jalen Waddle. I don't think that human exists in college football, may not even exist at the next level consistently. And it's a blessing for Alabama that John Mechie has developed to the degree that he has. Devontae Smith is there. I think Miller Forrestall has really come on for them as a legitimate receiving option at tight end. And he's a good enough inline blocker to where you don't have to necessarily sell what you're going to do when he's on the field. But I want you to think about this. If I'm Kirby Smart and I'm looking at my defense, I'm going to contest everything. But you throw some slants to Jalen Waddle as long as I'm sure tackling, which Georgia is, I'm okay with that, okay? You pick up 10, 12 yards, I'm fine with that. I want to get you down inside the red zone, okay? The game's going to start for me against you when I get you inside the red zone because all that vertical threat and all that speed and all that able to pop a top off my defense, well, it doesn't exist when I'm only defending 20 yards, 15 yards, whatever the case may be. And at that point, that's where I got a lot of veteran leadership. I got a lot of speed. I got a lot of physicality on my defense, 
And you got Mac Jones over there who has played great this year, almost flawlessly, but he hadn't faced me. I'm speaking as Kirby Smart now. Hadn't faced me. And so when I compress the field on you a little bit, knowing that turnovers, I mean, it happened in the Iron Bowl, for example, kind of a freak thing, but it happened in the Iron Bowl. One turnover could mean the difference in this game. I trust my defense to force those turnovers. So I, if I were Kirby Smart, that's where the game's going to be won and lost to me for Georgia is in the red zone. And conversely, with Alabama, explosive plays. That's what it's all about. I'm not saying you get nervous when you get down inside the red zone. Quite the opposite. But you got the home run hitters that very few other teams in America do. You got the offensive line that is exceptional in pass pro, the likes of which very few teams do. You're going to face a front that can bring you blitzes in multiple different ways, can pressure you in multiple different ways. I think it is the best pass rush that Georgia has had to date under Kirby Smart. But those explosive plays and scoring, not necessarily just in the red zone, really big deal. You know, you're watching footage right here, Colin showing you those safeties at Georgia, a little bit better than the ones at A&M. But that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. Fast start, I think, is also a big deal for Alabama. Number one, so they can somewhat control the first half and get Jordan Battle back. It almost sounds like that LSU game last year. Everyone said, hey, Devin White, when LSU gets Devin White back in the second half, it's like he's not even going to run out of the locker room. He is going to descend from the top row with a cape, and then he's going to rectify all the problems. No, it's not like that. Um, too many problems probably defensively right now for him to rectify. But I will say this. The last two times these teams have played, Georgia's owned the first half. If Georgia does to Alabama, stylistically, in the first half of this game, what they've done the last two times, I think Georgia's winning the football game. It was a miracle Alabama was able to come back and win the last two. Um, there was a lot of talent, and there was a lot of execution involved. Don't think I'm telling you it was a freak occurrence. Uh, Alabama had everything to do with that, but they did not put themselves in the most opportune position. you got to make sure that that's not duplicated here. Um, Mac Jones... There's such a bright spotlight on him now. Mac Jones was thought of coming into the season as a placeholder. You and I probably thought about the same thing about Mac Jones. Thought he was talented enough. Now, you list, if you watch the show in the offseason, you know what I thought about him. I thought that there was a legitimate two-quarterback situation at Alabama, not in the manner that you normally would speak in. I didn't think there was a competition for who's going to start in week one. But I thought Mac Jones was going to be good, nothing more than good, going to be serviceable, and eventually Bryce Young is going to take this job over probably somewhere down the road. Well, he may. I don't think that road's going to be in 2020. Mac Jones has been phenomenal. Now, I want to stress, that guy's got more arm talent, and he's got much better accuracy, and he's got much better intangibles and efficiency and poise than just some game manager. So I know that term gets thrown around a whole lot for basically anyone who doesn't look like a freak athletically. Mac Jones is a level above that. So I can also tell you this, speaking to some people at Alabama in the preseason before we had ever seen anything, any game or anything like that, I had some people very close to that program tell me, this offense is going to be better than it was last year. Now, I flatly called BS on that for obvious reasons, because you just watched a generational talent at quarterback walk out the door and a couple of generational talents at wide receiver walk out the door. Like any program would be lucky in a 30-year span to have any one of those players. You just lost all three of them. Judy, Ruggs, Tagovailoa, you lost all of them. There is no shot that you improve from that. There's no shot that you remain on par with that. I've watched them so far this year, and I'm still not ready to say that, but I see exactly where people were coming from. You got to face the test before I say that about you. you and with all due respect, you don't prove that against Ole Miss. You don't prove that against Missouri. You could prove it against Georgia. 
What I think they're able to do is I think Sarkeesian's able to do a lot more of what he wants to do with Mac Jones. Mac Jones may be a little more limited physically. He's not a weakness physically. He's a little more limited physically, but I think that you can do a lot more progression-based play calling. I think he's a lot more efficient. I think he is as good a decision maker, if not a better decision maker. He is not a guy who is going to make the critical error. At least I don't think that that is him. And they got the wide receiver talent, and they got a really good backfield, and they got an exceptional offensive line. Pass and run. They got an exceptional offensive line. So, man, talk about an ultimate test for Mac Jones. I mean, Mac Jones, that's a career night for him, one way or the other, this coming Saturday. Georgia, I want to stress this now. I've said this before when they played Bama. I'm going to say it again. Georgia doesn't have to change anything. They are one of the few teams on this planet that can go into a game against Alabama and don't have to freak out and sit in the film room and, and have, you know, take the top off their pen and write down 37 things that they're going to have to do different than they normally do if they're going to have a shot to win. Georgia's list is like that long. It's just a white piece of paper. It's just be us. Georgia has, Georgia's not at a talent deficit. Georgia's experienced in the big games. Georgia is not a casualty of COVID and that they got a bunch of new guys they're trying to break in, at least on defense. I mean, they, they brought back what they had last year. There's continuity. Defensive coordinators back. Head coaches back. And so that's why they've been tearing people up defensively. But the point is, they don't think they take a backseat to Alabama. Most people do think that, even if they don't admit so when a mic's in front of their face during the week. Georgia doesn't have to change anything about who they are. Alabama doesn't have to change anything about who they are. That's what's great about watching games like this, is you very rarely get teams that say that when they're playing the other, Georgia or Alabama. Lost in all this, and I want to kind of reiterate this, lost in all this is this whole LSU comparison. I want to go back to this. I mentioned it a second ago. A lot of people are looking and they're saying, okay, I remember the last time Georgia faced a high-octane offense. It was in Atlanta. It was the SEC title game. It was LSU. And hey, I mean, you know, they, they held their own early on, and they did, man. They played LSU tough. But then the dam eventually broke and LSU pulled away. So Stands to reason, this is not me speaking, this is what I've heard this week, stands to reason, if that's the last time they played an elite offense, well now, this is the next time, so they'll be what you would call exposed again. There's a difference here, friends. I'm not saying Alabama's not going to have success against them Saturday night. I expect them to have success against them. I don't think anyone's bottling that offense up, totally. They're also not scoring 50, somewhere between 0 and 50. I'm confident in making that prediction already. Joe Burrow had something probably a few things intangibly, but had something that Mac Jones does not possess. And those are wheels. It's the ability when everything broke down, when that Joe Moore award-winning offensive line wasn't able to hold up, uh, granted it was like seven or eight seconds, he was able to extend the play. Mac Jones, I don't know where he is right now, it's probably in his room, but I can tell you where he's going to be every snap. And that's pretty close to where he received the ball at. Uh, that's a, not a guy who is utilized heavily in the run game, not a lot of option in this Alabama offense, and that's not a guy, once you break that pocket, that's going to extend plays to the degree that even a Stetson Bennett would, much less a Joe Burrow did. So you can take the LSU comparisons and you can throw them out the window as far as I'm concerned. Can their production be what LSU's was last year? Now that's the kind of stuff you can talk about, but I'm, I'm not going to be the dude who sits here and compares them without ever thinking past the surface. That's not what this team is. But I'll tell you what this team does have, this Alabama team, that gives me a lot of confidence that they'll be able to still move the ball Saturday night. Their pass protection has been spectacular. And so I think they're a lot better in pass pro than LSU's offensive line was last year, and that team won the Joe Moore Award. I want to remind you of that. 
what Joe Burrow had the ability to do in extending plays, I think maybe this Alabama team has the ability to do in that you just give your quarterback more time to throw. And you've seen Dan Lanning and company bring a ton of really exotic blitzes early on. I don't necessarily know that that scares Alabama as much as maybe it does other teams. Because number one is they got more receiving options. Number two, you got a back out of the backfield, Najee Harris, that's a very good pass catcher, as is Miller Forrestall. You got three wide receivers who can run drags over the middle at any given point. I don't necessarily know. I think early on they'll blitz him. I don't know if it's going to be an all-night thing because I really expect Alabama to be able to adapt to that pretty quickly. And so at that point, I mean, it'll just kind of be strength on strength, and I'm really looking forward to that because this Georgia pass rush now, you don't have to bring a bunch of exotic blitzes so far this year against most teams. They've been able to get pressure without having to do that. It's just the cherry on top when they bring the blitzes. They need to get pressure without having to bring a lot of guys. You know, in other words, do what we've talked about Alabama doing for a long time. So, man, let's, um, I'll tell you what, Colin, let's show the game capsule. And so let's tell you what the Vegas number is uh, at the moment at six. And that's what our number is. If you're listening on the podcast, we have it shorter than the Vegas guys do. We have it at Alabama minus three. I've developed a principle here uh, that has impacted my decision on this game, which was made about an hour ago, um, full context. I probably, a couple of years ago, I got burned a few times in games like these. And what happened was there were games, I don't, I, it's pointless to mention which ones they are, but there were games where there was a team that had an edge, roster-wise, defensively, uh, probably the more physical team, and I got burned a couple times riding those factors over an elite offense. And so I told myself, if I get evenly matched games down the road, what I'm going to do is I am going to divorce myself of a lot of the stuff that I grew up being taught you have to have to win. You have to have elite defense to win. Elite defense will always beat elite offense. That's not always the case anymore. Um, so what I have is the freeze point theory that I've talked about. It's two-way go in this one, by the way. There's a certain level of defense, caliber of defense, collectively, all three levels you have to have to be able to stop Alabama uh, if you don't meet that. Just like if you're not below 32 degrees, doesn't matter how long you sit the cup of water there, it's never freezing. If it's below freezing, just how long is it going to take to freeze? Georgia's well below freezing, okay? The first team this year that Alabama's faced that meets that freeze point. So then the question becomes, how much can Georgia limit Alabama by? A&M had no chance. They were like 35 degrees. Okay, Georgia's well down into the 20s. How long does it take to freeze them? Well, it's the other way around, too. Just Georgia defense hasn't faced any offense that meets the freeze point yet, and they've suffocated everyone. Well, Alabama's does, and it's not some one-trick pony. It's not a, a superstar running back and some decent receivers. It's not one superstar receiver that you can bracket and take out of a game. They got a bunch of them. They got a plethora of them, even after losing a couple of them in the first round and a quarterback along with it. So... You ask the same thing about Bama's offense that you do about Bama's defense. I told myself when I got burned a couple years ago, when in doubt, roll that offense. I can make a spectacular argument both ways here, and I have. Walking around a park earlier today downtown talking to myself, and someone saw me, and that was embarrassing. I'm going to roll with Alabama to win this game. Don't know if I would have said that yesterday. I'm going to take Alabama to win, and strictly on principle, because I have no strong feel, I'm going to take Georgia to cover. Why not? So our model likes Georgia to cover. Our model likes Alabama to win. And since I didn't have a strong feeling either way, I was on the seesaw all day, I'm going to roll with our model. Take Bama to win and taking Georgia to cover. And the last thing on this planet I would do is wager money on this contest. Really excited to watch it, though. Earlier today, I wake up. A little bit groggy-eyed because I recorded a podcast at 2 o'clock last night. 
and Barton's in the 24-7 Slack room. Uh, the same Barton Simmons that body shamed me on the uh, Barton and Bud podcast yesterday. But that's okay. I know his reasons. And he has, to, he has to reason that in his own heart. I know. I know where his heart's at. I think his heart is still good. But I just think, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes Satan works. And sometimes he's working when you're recording a podcast. And I just think, I just think the devil was working on Barton a little bit yesterday. So he body shamed me. That's okay. I still promoted their podcast. But what Barton did this morning is he drops in the Slack room and he says, hey, man. It's Team Talent Composite Day. And so I said, yes, I knew. I mean, I, we had it on our calendar, but I said, we got a show tonight. This is a perfect time to talk about this. So you've heard it said, and it's accurate, that a chef is only as good as his ingredients. And that's true. Just like a coach sometimes is only as good as the pieces he has on his roster. The 24-7 Sports Team Talent Composite is quite simply a measure of how much talent you have on your roster. I'll tell you how we do it in just a second. It's not that complicated. But what I do occasionally do here, and I'm going to do it now, is I'm going to remind you what this isn't. What this isn't is a guarantee that if you're ranked in the top 10, you're automatically going to be a top 10 performing team. See Texas. More on the Longhorns in a little while. However, what it also does tell us is, it does tell us there's probably a certain line where if you're below this line on the team talent composite, probably not standing a very good chance of being a playoff team. So, you know, maybe my Iowa State Cyclones bucked that trend this year. They're 55th right now, and yet they could possibly be in the driver's seat in the Big 12. We had a big win Saturday over Texas Tech. We are excited in Ames, Iowa. So, important note here. This is not just an aggregation of your last four recruiting classes. What it is instead, because you know a lot of those guys never make it to campus, a lot of those guys transfer, it is a shot-for-shot -shot measure right now, this very moment in time of who's on your roster and how good are they? What star rating did we have on them? What player rating did we have on them coming out of high school? Who's actually here? Attrition is taken into account. Transfers out and in taken into account. Alabama's been number one on this the last four years. They've been at or near the top pretty much a couple of years after Saban was there and was able to build the roster. And uh, this tool came along about 2015. So George has overtaken that is the point right on time. Not necessarily saying we timed it up like this, but it is very convenient. Bama plays Georgia Saturday night, Georgia, the number one roster in America, Alabama, right there. Number two roster in America, fractions of a point. I think it's five points total. Georgia's roster has 16 guys rated former five-star. It has 52 more rated former four-star. I do want to point this out. This is the number one roster in America now. Difference between uh, Pruitt at Tennessee and Kirby at Georgia. Kirby inherited the number six roster in America. So this was already a pretty good roster when he got there. He just made it elite. Now as for Alabama, I said Georgia's got 16 five-stars, 52 four-stars. Bama's got 12 five-stars, 58 four-stars. So if you add both of those up, Bama's got a couple of more four and five star combined than Georgia does. Georgia's got a few more five stars. And for all we know, that could be the fractions of difference in inches that make up the game Saturday night. So what a showdown that is. But some other teams to pay attention to here. Clemson is number four. If you don't know anything about the rosters, you may say, ooh, Clemson dropped because they've been winning titles. And well, now they're all the way down at number four. No, 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 no. They have been winning titles. Clemson's never been this high. Clemson normally floats in like the 5 to 15 range, somewhere around there. Now they're number four and rising. This is the Deshaun Watson impact. As I told you, this is what I pull for with Penn State and Notre Dame. Get a superstar quarterback in there that changes the 
um, the way you brand your program, the way your program is perceived nationally. Deshaun Watson did that for Clemson. And then all of a sudden, everyone wanted to come there and play, including elite quarterbacks. See Trevor Lawrence, DJ Uyangalale sitting on the bench over there, whereas he would be playing for most teams right now. So they're not going anywhere. They're only trending upwards. Here's the assumption, though, that I'm not making quite yet. The assumption is Clemson has already won titles. Clemson with a, an S, of course, even though I pronounce the Z. They've already won titles, okay? So now, if they've already won titles, now they're going to be more talented than they have been when they won those titles. That means they'll just win more titles by a wider margin, right? Could be the case. They've got a strong culture up there. Could very well be the case. But I do want to just remind you of something. Uh, this has happened before. I'm not saying it's going to happen to Clemson. It's happened before. Sometimes when you have that really tight-knit culture and you got a good roster, uh, good, plenty good enough to win a championship, especially if you got an elite quarterback, but it's, it's very, it feels very local in some ways. It just feels very tight-knit and everyone's an insider. There really are no outsiders there. It's very much a family thing and it's just it's one like rubber band ball. Then you win with that rubber band ball. Then all of a sudden, rubber bands from all over the country want to come in. They want to be part of the ball, but sometimes guys are there not because they were drawn to Clemson. Sometimes guys are there because, well, they were drawn to winning, just like they're going to other places to win. And sometimes that can have, if things go sideways, an adverse impact on your locker room. I've talked about this with Clemson folks before. They assure me, nope, culture's different here. We have a different filtration process and vetting process when we bring guys in. We say no to some guys who are character risks. I know that. I know all that. So I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying the blind assumption I'm going to hold off on. But it's, it's definitely a good sign. I'd much rather be number four than number eight, for example. Uh, Florida is number seven. That's the highest the Gators have been under Dan Mullen. Notre Dame is number eight. That's the highest that the Irish have been under Brian Kelly. Both of these are new highs, and this just screams to me. Superstar quarterback away from being a national championship contender. Uh, now, at Notre Dame, I would also argue, need some better perimeter skill, but by and large, and maybe a little bit speedier secondary, but by and large, look at where they're positioned. And I get so tired of people telling me Notre Dame's overrated. No, they're not. They're rated exactly where they should be. No, no, they're overrated, man. They never win national titles. Who's predicting them to win a national title? In order to be overrated, it means you, you, you are falling short of where people rate you. No one's rating Notre Dame, a top four team in the country. They never do that, actually. No one does that outside of Notre Dame fans. I mean outsiders. People say, all right, this team, they're not Clemson or Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, but the next tier, that's where they are. That's absolutely where they are. They've had double-digit win years, three years in a row now. You see they're a top 10 team on the talent composite. Like, that's where they are. They're not overrated at all. They're properly rated to me. Florida, though, this is a good sign now. Now they got to kick it into the next gear recruiting. It helps to win games. And so you know, that defensive roster, for example, they've also infused transfer talent there. Brenton Cox, for example, is a big-time player for them right now. He came in via transfer from Georgia, no less. Multiple ways to stack a roster up. As I said, Iowa State, number 55. So that's the antithesis of this. You don't have to be top 10 to win, uh, but you got to have a certain identity about yourself, and you got to be rock solid culturally if you're not going to be in this top 10 to beat teams who are in the top 10. Uh, by 10 miles, and this is no mystery, we're about to talk about this team in a second, the most underachieving nexus in the college football universe is the University of Texas. They are the number five roster in America. They also may be the number five team in their own conference. It's beyond embarrassing 
what's happening there right now. I have notes on the piece of paper in front of me, Colin, for all these other teams. And for Texas, I just drew a frowny face. So Texas is in frowny face territory. But it may not be a good sign for Tom Herman, but for the guy who may come in behind him, look at the cupboard. It's stacked. Someone just went to the grocery store. It's like a condo, and they just stocked it for you, and all you got to do is drive down for the weekend. Hmm. Oregon and Michigan. Barton wrote a really good uh, summary on this on 247sports.com. It's still there if you want to look at it, and he pointed out these two at the very end, and I agree. Mario Cristobal, it's no mystery what he's been doing on the West Coast. Oregon, when he got there, was the number 25 roster. They are now the number 12 roster. They've got a big-time class coming in, and there is another team in the Big Ten going the opposite direction. And this is not a good sign. There's no other way to dress this up. Michigan had the number seven roster in America when Jim Harbaugh was there in 2015. They're now number 17. So they are about as badly in need of one of those kind of shifts in identity as any team in America is. Uh, hopefully, you know, something crazy happens this year with Joe Milton at quarterback and, you know, uh, Josh Gaddis and his, his system really takes root in year two. But remains to be seen still at Michigan. So that's a really interesting thing. I would highly advise you to go read that on 247sports.com. We're going to wrap up. Uh, well, we got two things to get to. we got best bets coming up at the end of the show. The state of the program at Texas, as I said, is maybe not something if you're a Virginia Tech fan you care a whole lot about. But as I also told you, Texas is a keystone program. What happens there affects everyone. It affects the entire sport. The entire ecosystem is affected. If there's a job opening, for example, at Texas, and there could be one in the not-too-distant future. I told you last Saturday, I thought the Red River shootout between Texas and OU, I thought it was a game Oklahoma would love to have. I thought it was a game Texas and Tom Herman had to have. Texas lost that game. I don't think Tom Herman's going to be the head coach at Texas next year as a result of that. I don't think anything's happening this week, but I think that uh, things were set in motion after that loss that will result in you having a new head coach at Texas in 2021. This is my opinion on this. There's a lot obvious on the surface. They are discombobulated. They are one of the high penalty teams in college football. They never play consistently. They are mistake prone. All that's on the surface and that's clear. Also, they're just not winning enough games. That's obvious. There's a lot of other stuff going on at Texas and this is where the drama really kicks in behind the surface that's less obvious. Sam Ellinger, you were looking at, you're still looking at a picture of him right now if you're watching on YouTube. There was a moment, it's been a big talk in Texas circles this week that maybe you're not familiar with. Uh, they've had a big controversy about the eyes of Texas out there, the song uh, that they play after the game, and it is ingrained. It is one of the layers of the fabric of Texas football culture. They play it at weddings, they play it at birthdays, they play it at graduation. It's a big deal. It may sound silly to you, it's a huge deal to those folks. Sam Ellinger was one of. I can't tell you he was the only one. I know from the pictures I saw, he was one of the only kids in that entire roster standing on the field after the game Saturday with the horns up. They just lost in devastating fashion when they played Eyes of Texas. Uh, folks are irate about it, and they're irate because they, they feel like Tom Herman's lost his locker room, or maybe he never had a firm grasp on it. And I was reading Bobby Burton talk about this over on Horns 24-7 today, and he made a good point. And he's obviously far more dialed in at Texas than I am, but he made a really good point. He said... You know, in his estimation, he thinks Herman kind of tried to play things both ways here. He thought winning would cure everything. He thought they'd get into the season, and he thought they'd be winning games, and so all that stuff would subside. 
and you know p- players that claim they didn't feel comfortable standing on the field when that song was played, all that would kind of be swept away because everyone would be winning and things would be hunky-dory. Well, there aren't winning and things aren't hunky-dory. And so now there's nothing to fall back on, really. A lot of people viewed this as the last straw, not just the loss to Oklahoma, but then that scene on the field was an entire microcosm in many people's minds in Austin and beyond of what Texas football is under Tom Herman and much more importantly, what it hasn't been under Tom Herman. And I agree with what Bobby was saying, for example, and what some other Texas folks I've talked to this week have said, there's no but. Sometimes when you got a guy... You know, Greg Marshall's been under fire, Wichita State, for example, this week. A report came out about how he had treated players. There's a but with Greg Marshall. And the but is, well, but he wins a whole lot. You know, if you're going to defend Greg Marshall, it, well, but, but he does win. Uh, this hasn't been, there's been no allegation of Tom Herman abusing players or anything like that. But what I'm saying is people are mad at him. And people are very upset with the way the program's being run. There's no but. What do you fall back on? What's better now? What's trending in the right direction? With Texas. There's no positive. There's nothing. You, you got the multi-year experienced quarterback there. This is the year. We talked about this in the preseason. This was the year it all should be happening for Texas. It's not. So there's nothing, even if someone wants to defend you, what do you, what do you say? If I were to be in a debate setting, if this were a debate class and I were handed Tom Herman as the cause that I had to defend, it'd be a short debate. I'll tell you that. And I pride myself on my debate skills. It'd be a short debate. I had another person I was talking to this week. I kind of asked them to be the devil's advocate because they, they agree that they probably don't want Herman around much longer. But I said, what are people saying at Texas who aren't necessarily sold that a move needs to be made? Because a lot of the power brokers are sold that a move needs to be made and are willing to withhold certain things and resources and assets if a move isn't made. But I said, what, what are people saying? What's the other side of this coin? There's got to be another side. Well, it'll wreck the recruiting class. And I laughed, and they said, no, no, seriously, that's, that's what they're saying. I couldn't believe it. Like, that's the best that you came back with? Because no one at Texas ever comes back with the same thing you would say at South Carolina right now, which is, well, it's going to cost a lot of money to buy him out. That, that, that stuff's a rounding error for them. That's an office supply budget for some of the Texas big money folks. So no one cares about the money. Money. I mean, we're sitting here calling our betting segment the Ramen Noodle Express. They live in a different world out there in the uh, ONG world, the uh, oil and gas industry, they different world. So they don't worry about the money, but the recruiting class, that's what I've been told could suffer. Uh, obviously, the retort from anyone with common sense is, what's happening right now? Did you not hear what I just said? We just did the team talent composite. For those of you watching the individual video, not the whole show, Texas has the number five roster in America right now. They suck. They're a bad football team. What are they going to become the number three team in America? Are they all of a sudden going to win after that? What's going to happen? What, what sign have you seen that Tom Herman's going to win with any amount of talent? I haven't seen that at all. I haven't seen that whatsoever. So I would come back at you with this. It is inexplicable that guys like the Brockermeyer twins, who are Texas legacies, who probably grew up looking for a reason to commit to Texas, are not committed to Texas. Both of them are going to Alabama. There's no excuse why those kids shouldn't be going to Texas. That's one of a number of recruitments we could talk about. If all you're worried about is your recruiting class, let me tell you what you can do with that argument. I hope you hear that on the podcast. That's what we do with that argument. Because I couldn't care less what talent you have. You can't do anything with it. And so let's go find a guy. Because what it does, we have recruited well here at Texas. What it does is 
as I've made this metaphorical comparison many times this week, what it does is it goes back to what I've said about Texas. Texas is not broken. They're not broken. They've got the investment financially, emotionally. It's a massive fan base. It's a globally recognized brand. It's a prestigious university. They are enhancing the game day experience there. They are massively upgrading facilities. They're adding on to the stadium. Everything and then some you could ever want if you were a head coach in demand is at Texas. They are the fighter jet. It's already built. It's already been rolled off the assembly line. The only problem is you just got the wrong guy in the cockpit in my opinion. Well, guess what? You don't have to rebuild the plane. See, if you had to rebuild the plane, like if you had to tear everything down and start over, that's a multi-year rebuild. You don't. You take the pilot out of the cockpit and you put someone in there who has experience flying a jet like that, and then you, you close that little glass roof and he puts on, puts on his little face mask, he's ready to go. Introduce himself to the secretaries, but he's ready to go. Install his culture, he's ready to go. Just keep recruiting like they are. He's ready to go. I think that's what has to happen at Texas. I think that is, to me now, the majority sentiment about what has to happen at Texas. All right, let's wrap it up, Colin, for uh, at least the Tuesday show, and let's talk about the Ramen Noodle Express. We are adding two best bets tonight. They have already been released. If you follow me on Twitter, at LateKickJosh, and I sure do hope that you are, because these lines have moved. That's why I released them on Twitter. We want to get them when we can get them. So at Lake Kick Josh is where you want to follow me there. We uh, Sunday night gave you Virginia minus two at Wake Forest. That line has since moved to three. We wanted to get it before it moved there. Two more bets that we have released. North Carolina is at Florida State this week. It is currently a 63.5 point over under. We got it at 61. We're taking the over. We got it at 61. Also, Cincinnati, minus three. This is the current number, so you can grab this one out. Cincinnati is only a three-point favorite against Tulsa. Now, I want to be very clear with you. This is going to be a massive public side. Everyone and their grandma is going to be on Cincinnati. They are going to see a top-ten team. I didn't know Cincinnati was ranked top ten until yesterday when I looked at the AP for the first time this year, so I couldn't care less where teams are ranked. I know where I have them power-rated, but Cincinnati is a top 10 team against an unranked team, and they're only, they're only favored by three. Free money, free money. Well, that's obviously not the case, but our numbers do love Cincinnati here. So uh, there was an old Merle Haggard song called Okie from Muskogee. One of the lines in there is sometimes even squares can have a ball. Sometimes even a square bet pays off, and we are, we're going with the Merle Haggard protocol on the Cincinnati minus three line. So those are the three that we're adding. We're adding two. We already had Virginia on the books. So UNC Florida State over 61, Cincinnati minus three. If you haven't already, subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Make sure you do that. We have got a flood of new subscribers coming in. And also, like I said, our 100th episode of Late Kick Extra earlier today so go find the podcast if you haven't listened to that already. That's unique. We don't put that on YouTube. That's just in the podcast feed. And when you do that, do me a favor, really quick. Give me a five-star review while you're over there. We want to get that all the way to 1,000. So we have got, obviously, a Thursday show coming up. We're going to talk even more about what we talked about tonight. We're going to find out what's happening with Florida LSU. We're going to preview some more games Thursday night. Colin, one of our stars, almost fell off the desk. We ended the show just in time. For Director Colin, for Tani and Jordan on the podcast side, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks for watching. God bless. Have a great rest of your night.